You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Time after time, what we need to do is align our principles with how we behave in the world, including in our businesses, including in our interactions with baristas and doctors. We, We have to align them across the board. Whether it is the person who is sending you a DM as soon as you add them as a friend on LinkedIn that is selling you everything that they have to offer under the sun for their business, or the person who gives you a hug that lasts just a little bit too long when you reached out your hand for a handshake, many of us have experienced a breach of consent. And therefore, that uncomfortable or sometimes downright gross feeling that we have in our body when that breach happens has told us that consent is important. It matters. But how do we integrate consent into our marketing, into our business, into the way that we promote what we have to offer? You're listening to Flaunt Your Fire, the brand visibility podcast where we own our values as we amplify our influence. I am your host, India Jackson, and today I am recording on the stolen land of my brother's ancestors, the Piscataway people. This land is known to many as the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C., and its surrounding area. And I am really excited to dig in today's conversation. Today, I'm interviewing Kelly Deals, and we are talking consent. So let me tell you about Kelly. Kelly is a business and self-development coach. And she helps culture-making leaders get out of shame and into power so that they can grow lives and organizations that truly make a difference. Kelly has worked with New York Times bestselling authors, national and international feminist organizations, and thousands of online entrepreneurs. And the culture-making leaders that Kelly works with are using their lives and resources to build a future in which we all flourish. And in today's conversation, we're going to be chatting about what flaunting Kelly's fire means for her right now, why consent is important in marketing and what inspired Kelly to share her perspective on it, why the online business industry is not prioritizing consent as a general concept in most marketing courses, and how the practice of refreshing consent may or may not have evolved the way that Kelly shows up. Kelly's also going to be sharing some common mistakes and misconceptions that she encounters about creating a culture of consent. And it wouldn't be a Flaunt Your Fire episode if we did not share one action that will support you in creating a culture of consent for yourself. But before we start, I wanted to share with you some things that have been on my radar when it comes to consent. One of the things that I've really been thinking about is how can we integrate even more consent into our business practices through Flaunt Your Fire and Pause in the Play. So if you're on our email list, you've noticed that we do refresh consent before we do launches, though we don't really like to call them launches, to be honest. But we also have integrated in the bottom of our newsletters where you can click to opt out out of specific types of conversations or topics that we're covering. Um, everything from Erica's newsletters on the Erica Corday newsletter talks about crystals sometimes. If you're not interested in crystals, you can opt out of getting her conversations about crystals. And I think that that's important because it gives people an opportunity to really curate what are they receiving when they give their email. 
But I've also been thinking about consent in life. And one of the things that I've noticed as someone who has lots of people around me with children, children of their own, children that they borrow sometimes, children that they support, children that I support, children that I borrow and return to the owner. (laughs) You know, what are we doing when it comes to consent with children? So often children are left behind. And I'll share a little bit in this episode later on about the fact that I have experienced sexual violence as a child. So this is something that is always on my mind is how can we really nurture our children and make sure that they are included in certain conversations and have the support that they need, but also are aware of what do they want to consent to and what does no look like for them. One of the things that I think is so important, I'm so excited about, is that inside Pause on the Play of the Community, we now have a workshop facilitated by Shannon Collins and Stacey Lampkin. And in this workshop, sharing about kids online, do you have their consent? They go into so many things that many people may not consider about children. Like when it comes to posting photos or sharing stories about kids online, you know, were you including them in that conversation? Did you even ask them before you picked up the camera if they feel comfortable with being photographed? If you did, once you've done that, have you had a discussion about where, when, where, and how you share those images? And if they have different parents or guardians, have you had those conversations with their parents as well? So in that workshop, Stacy and Shannon are sharing some basics of consent, including the why, not just the what, but also giving you the space to really kind of explore boundary setting. They're giving you some questions to ask yourself before you share things online with children and also a space for accountability with yourselves and others and some tools and resources. Last but not least, they're going to go into some FAQ or frequently asked questions that other community members are asking and presenting about children and consent. So you'll be able to complete this workshop with a better idea of how to respect children's boundaries and autonomy around consent, specifically digging into how do you create a safer online space for children. Whether you have children in your life or not, you may be around children. So this workshop will really support you in reconsidering your why and how we interact with children from a place of respecting their full consent. And as someone who has supported many brands, especially personal brands and solopreneurs and mommypreneur brands, as some people call them, over the years where they are sharing their children, I can tell you this workshop is a gem. You can learn more about it and join us inside Pause in the Play the Community where you get unlimited access to this workshop where you can come in and take it at any time, 24 hours on demand, as well as continue the conversation in the space, asking any questions and getting feedback along the way. You can learn more about that again at pauseontheplay.com slash community. Now let's get this conversation started. You've been on an interesting journey that many people have had the ability to witness parts of publicly. And I think sometimes we get to see pieces of things, but not necessarily know where someone is in the now. So I'm curious to know right now, what does flaunting your fire mean for you? You know, right now in this immediate time, I'm in an incredibly sweet and poignant and meaningful time of life. Um, My oldest daughter has just graduated from high school and has achieved all these incredible milestones recently. And I'm seeing her navigate the world with confidence and competence. And she isn't having to recover from her childhood. And she has never dieted a day in her life. And she has a real sense of self and who she is and an ability to advocate for herself and others. And I look at this and I think that's her accomplishment but I facilitated the conditions that made that possible. And so where my fire is coming from right now and what I'm flaunting is something that I've been telling everyone for a long time, but we have the ability to shape culture. We have the ability to create culture and we have the ability to create circumstances in which everyone can flourish. And I have been able to do that in my home, which is a very tiny little culture, a tiny little ecosystem. And I'm, trying to let other people know 
that this is possible for us. And in fact, we'll be way more successful at it if we do it together. So that's where my fire is coming from. We really can shape culture. Every single one of us is a culture maker. Uh, I love what you just shared there because I think so often, um, especially for someone like me, where at this point in time, I don't have children. And for the longest I live this single life, uh, it can be easy to be in this world of diversity, equity, inclusion, or being a business owner or a personal brand even, um, which is another rabbit hole you and I could go down for a later time. But in the way that we show up, um, if you're coming from that ethical place, you're constantly thinking about how can you inspire the culture shift in others that you're working with? Um, How can you demonstrate that in the brand that you've built and the businesses that you've created? And you can forget the the possibility of doing that at home in, in your own immediate sphere. Yeah. And I think actually that's, we're always culture making in every single relationship we are in, in every circumstance we're in. When we're at the doctor's office, whether or not we play along with the, the power script that's supposed to be happening is an act of culture making. So like literally every tiny circumstance in our life, we have the ability to shift power dynamics and change outcomes and change circumstances and plant seeds of possibility in other people. Not all of them will take, but across time, we can have an influence like that. And I actually think it's most profound in our personal relationships because where there is love and where there is trust is where we have the most ability to influence each other for the good. There's a thing in India where all the things go together because one of the reasons my daughter is so competent and confident and sure of herself is because she's grown up with a mother who is an entrepreneur who made something out of nothing and she witnessed that. She witnessed us going from nothing, from me um, having no child support, two children under the age of four, you know, having nothing to building something where their every need is taken care of. And she saw me do that. And so she, she's witnessed my growth and my evolution. So my work, you know, in my business, which also is about aligning my principles and my politics with my business practices, all of those things have influenced her ability to grow up whole. So time after time, what we need to do is align our principles with how we behave in the world, including in our businesses, including in our interactions with baristas and doctors. Like we, we have to align them across the board. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't say that better. Um, just witnessing the power of parents who are doing things differently amongst my friendship sphere. Um, Erica Corday, who I own Pause in the Play with as well, is a great example of that. And witnessing those things, but also I have a feeling that there's probably been some very intimate conversations and transparency about what you're doing and why as well. Right. And there's been lots of painful episodes in our lives and lots of really difficult things we went through that I didn't have a handbook for because I was literally trying to do things differently. So there were lots of times where they were experiencing pain because um, a family member was not showing up appropriately for them. And there was literally nothing I could do about that idea. Like I can't, control how other people behave. Um, and I can't insulate my children from the, the actions of other people. But what I can do is create like a soft place for them to process that so that it doesn't turn into lasting trauma. So one thing that we did, it was just a, a, an accidental thing that I discovered, but we started having conversations while baking and it became a <laughs> thing that we did together. And it felt like we were often transforming fear and pain into art. You know, we would sit down and we would make a fancy cake and we would ice it together or we'd make a pie that we didn't know how to make. And we would go talk through something. And I actually like wrote a little ebook about it one time was like, I literally think we are like alchemizing fear into creativity into, and I, I think that's a process is like, you can, you can make something from the pain, literally like bake a cake from the pain. And it changes into something else. And what it does is it also gets it out of your bodies. And I didn't know that I was doing that. All I knew was I was sitting down with my six and eight year old daughter and, you know, baking a cake while we talked about something that disappointed them. And the end outcome was we lightened the load on all of us and we got it out of our bodies and we made something delicious. And so that's sort of one of the things I look for in my life now is like, no matter what situation I'm in, 
I know I can make something delicious. It doesn't have to be a cake. It could be anything. I'm using that metaphorically, but I know no matter what situation I'm in, I can make something delicious. And I hope that I'm helping other people around me do that too. Uh, It definitely makes me think about the mind-body connection and how moving into our body also assists with allowing feelings to kind of move through and to be processed. Um, And that's something that I just... Uh, full transparency at 35 feel like was not being discussed when I was a child. <laughs> it was oh gosh, all like you. completely in the mind. <laughs> Indy, my daughter's 18. She spoke at her graduation ceremony and I didn't even know she was speaking at her graduation ceremony. She hid that from me. And so what had <laughs> happened is she got her driver's license and she was coming home late from school every day. And I thought she was out gallivanting with her friends, you know, as 18 year olds do, but no, she was meeting with a speech coach at school every day after school and planning the speech that she didn't tell me was happening. So that when it happened during her commencement ceremony, of course, I was completely shocked and I cried. And she went through this speech and said all these things that her mother taught her how to do. Her mother taught her how to have a good work ethic, but also to be kind to herself. And she like went through all these things. And I was like, wow, I taught her how to do all of those things. I'm not even 100% sure that I know how to do those things myself. (laughs) (laughs) So somehow I've been able to instill something in her that I never learned how to do, that I am only now, you know, in my 40s, learning how to do for myself, learning how to be kind to myself. That is a new development, you know, processing my feelings, new development. These are all new developments. These are not things I learned how to do as a child, but I am so inspired by the fact that there are, there is a generation of children who are learning how to do that. I know one of the things, switching gears a little bit, that you have inspired many to consider and speak about quite often, and dare I say are teaching them some ways to do that as well, uh, is digging into consent. And right now, um, we've been on a consent conversation and are continuing to have that and our community. And I was so just thinking about the different aspects of consent and how important it is and how it often gets ignored and left behind when it comes to marketing a business, um, being on social media, you know, having email newsletters and things like that. So as someone who is talking about consent, I'm really curious to know what inspired you to begin that conversation and to share your perspective on it. Well, I mean, it's a hard thing that has inspired me, which is that I was a victim of childhood sexual abuse. So I know intimately what overriding consent looks like, right? I know it. I can feel it in my body. I can sense it you know, in the air, in the room. And what I understand about that is our entire culture just casually overrides consent on a daily basis in a million different ways. So no wonder we don't know where the line is when it comes to, you know, physical bodily consent around sexual activity. Or no wonder lots of people do know where the line is, but feel emboldened and entitled to cross it. Because our entire culture normalizes not taking it seriously. And what I mean by that is in a million different ways, every single day we override consent and we make it not important. So here's my like personal sort of act of reclaiming, you know, my, my body and my agency in the world and hoping that we can create a culture that cherishes bodily autonomy and eradicate sexual violence is that we can really learn how to prioritize consent in every situation so that it becomes normal and so that we always know where the line is and we can always make sure we are cherishing and protecting everyone's bodily autonomy and freedom. Yeah, I'm so here for that. Um, And just sharing transparently, uh, we have a similar background of childhood sexual abuse. And so um, just taking a look at what those experiences and the impact that they have on someone, um, especially, you know, if it's before the age of 10 and then witnessing the culture that we're in and how consent is just so neglected. And as you said, it's, it's not taken seriously. Right. So we're not consent literate as a culture. And so one of the ways we can become consent literate is by really those of us who get it, teaching about it, prioritizing it, building into our practices and principles. And like one tiny little thing that I did in my marketing 
sequences that's had a big impact in many ways, like in many different layers, was I don't think that just because you sign up for a newsletter that you have consented forever to receiving any kind of communication from that newsletter. And so when I'm about to launch, my launches are pretty intensive. My launches are long. Usually my launches are about four weeks. And in that time, I might send an email a day, you know, from Monday to Friday for for four weeks or five weeks. So across time, I might send 20 or 25 emails across 30 days. That is a lot of emails. And if you were on my list and you were totally not interested in taking that course, that might feel like a bombardment. If you were interested in taking that course, it might feel like a mini course and it might feel delicious and you might read every bit, you know, with complete enthusiasm. However, I don't assume that just because you signed up to my newsletter, you want to receive 20 emails across 30 days, which is also not like the regular cadence. That's only when I'm launching. (laughs) So right before I launch, I send an email that says, hey, I'm about to launch this thing. Here's what it's about. That means I'm going to send a lot of emails, probably 20 in the next, you know, four to five weeks. If you don't want to hear about it, if you already know this is not for you, if you don't want to get that frequency of emails, click this link and you will not get any of those communications. You will still get my Sunday love letter, but you won't get this particular launch. And what that does is let people consent to hearing about it or not hearing about it and sort of take the the wheel about what kind of communications they want to receive from me. The first time I did that, I, I did it just from this gut feeling of like, I want to prioritize consent. This doesn't feel good to me that I'm sending 20 emails without having explicit consent. So it was just a, a like a, an internal reaction of aligning my principles with my practices. So I sent that out. I created that little sequence. And I, I honestly thought that then my launch was going to tank. I thought everyone would opt out and nobody would want the thing and I wouldn't <laughs> make sales, but it was important to me. So I did it anyways. But what actually happened in Dina was I got more sales and I actually got more sales off of that email saying, feel free to opt out, which I did not see coming at all because I didn't even include a link to the sales page. But what happened was my people align with that value and appreciate being asked for consent. And what it did was show a bunch of people who were sitting on the sidelines wondering if they should work with me that yes, I was the teacher for them. And they hunted down the sales page, which wasn't even in the email, and bought. And one person actually bought something more expensive. And because she said, you know what? She sent me an email. She said, this convinced me that you were the teacher for me. Hmm. And she went and bought a more expensive package. So I realized that, you know, the people who are attracted to my message prioritize the same things I do. So if I keep acting from a place of principle and inventing marketing funnels that embody those principles, then my business will work. I'm curious to know, uh, as you began to make this your normal practice of asking for that consent um, and allowing them to opt out if it's something that they're not interested in, did it evolve the way that you show up in your emails and the way that you communicate in any kind of way? I don't know that it changed anything because I already was doing something interesting that had like that had already changed the way I was showing up in my emails and the way that I write. So I, at that point had never had a lead magnet or an opt-in or a, you know, get this free gift and sign up to my newsletter. And first it was just sheer laziness. I couldn't figure out what thing to create. (laughs) So I just had nothing for like 10 years, but what it was. um, So the only reason that people were signing up to my newsletter was because they wanted to get my Sunday love letter, which is one of the things I'm most proud of. It's like a really great, communication that I write. And it's like one of the pieces of my body of work that I'm most proud of. But what that did though, was create a confidence that I didn't lure anyone into the newsletter, that the only reason they signed up was because they wanted me to write to them. And that changed everything. I didn't feel like an intruder in someone's inbox because there was almost like a pact that we had, which is they gave me their email And my job was to send the newsletter because that's why they gave me the email. So that completely emboldened me and made me get in the habit of writing that weekly newsletter. And that has definitely changed everything. Showing up every single week with a comprehensive, delicious essay for people that's no strings attached keeps me front of mind. And again, if we're sharing the same worldview and thinking through the same things, 
it helps them see that I might be the teacher for them when it's time for me to launch a product. Yeah. I'm curious to know when you first created the Sunday love letter, um, what inspired you to call it that and why Sunday? Oh, I was contrary. I had read some statistics that said like, you should never send emails on Fridays, Saturdays, or Sundays. Those are the lowest, you know, circulation days. Nobody opens their emails. (laughs) And my sort of contrary inner rebel says, when someone zigs, you should zag. So I thought, well, if nobody's sending emails on Sunday, that actually means that I'm going to be one of the only emails that comes through on Sunday, which I think means paradoxically more people might open it because there's less competition. So I was like, okay, Sunday. And because I, I kind of give a sermon in my newsletters, right? Uh, I, I take people to church where we're talking about principles. We're talking about morals. We're talking about our visions for the world. We're talking about how to align our beliefs with our daily practices. Like there's a spiritual component to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about business, but it's really, I'm talking about it on a higher plane of like aligning what you believe and trying to make it real in the world. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's go to church. We're going to do this on Sundays. And then I called it the Sunday love letter because that's what I wanted it to feel like. I wanted it to feel like a love letter. Like I wanted to pour my heart out and talk about the things that truly matter. And I wanted people to open it and feel nourished by it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it goes completely against the common marketing rhetoric of you have to make this lead magnet. And once you uh, sign up with your email address for this lead magnet, you go into this funnel that's immediately going to like slowly start to tell you stories, but eventually it's going to start jabbing you in the face with sales for this exact thing related to the lead magnet. (laughs) And it feels very predatory. Well, I mean, and it doesn't have to be, right? We can really take a look at this and, and not think about how do we extract from people, but how do we facilitate circumstances for everyone to thrive? So I feel great about my pricing. I feel like if someone takes one of my courses they're going to get 10 times, you know, what they paid for it if they implement it. So I feel like as long as I'm putting things out there that are good for people, that can help people accomplish what they're, what they're wanting to do, I can do it enthusiastically. So, you know, just because we're marketing doesn't mean we're preying on people. I personally love to buy things. (laughs) (laughs) So don't think that people are out there like trying to resist. If you've got what they want, people feel great about buying it. Are you enjoying this conversation as much as I am? Well, if so, I am going to ask you to pull out your app that you're currently listening from, or if you're reading the article, open up a new tab in your browser and search for pause on the play. Again, that is pause on the play. Over on the Pause and the Play podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Autumn Whit Boyd, and we are talking consent over there as well. And we're digging into the legal side of consent. So we're going to be specifically and explicitly discussing how can you create more transparency in your business and in your brand without creating more barriers to the purchasing process, how you can integrate a process for consent through your legal agreements as well as how you can really begin to create practices that support a culture of consent and have your values integrated in those legal agreements as well. So that's something you're interested in. Again, you don't want to miss it. Head on over to Pause in the Play, and you're going to search for the most recent episode with Autumn Whit Boyd and enjoy. Now back to the show. One of the things that's been on my radar is the standards of the online business industry and how it does have a lot of courses out there, a lot of entry-level information out there, and sometimes even more advanced information out there that is not prioritizing consent, is telling people to do these lead magnets and these marketing funnels that are not asking for permission along the way or giving people the option to opt out of what they're not interested in. And I'm wondering from your perspective, why do you feel like um, things are done that way and that that's the culture that we're in today? I think it's literally because we are in that culture. Like we're all in the water. We're all wet. This is how we grow up. This is what we're experiencing, what we're accustomed to. This is the status quo. These are the business rules. And we don't question them. We especially don't question them when we're new. So when I first came into the marketing world, I literally tried to do everything the way that these courses were teaching me. 
And I couldn't sustain it for more than three months because there was so much internal friction. Like it didn't align with my principles. I didn't feel good about it. I was like, I knew it was a violation of consent and I am a victim of sexual violence. Like I know what that looks like on every level. I would take these courses that were the status quo and I couldn't maintain them because there was too much internal friction. And, but the, the point is I had a particular identity that helped me see, like helped me see the wizard behind the curtain, so to speak. So sometimes people have certain experiences or certain identities or certain analyses that let them see how things really work. And when they have that, then the status quo systems like are, are just not going to work for them because they can't do it. They like the, the internal friction is too much. What I'm trying to say is when you're in the water, you don't even know you're wet unless you have an experience that helped you see something differently or an identity that helps you see something differently. So for example, as a, a fat woman in a big body, I experience the world differently than a woman in a straight size body. And I experience, you know, fat prejudice, I experience bias and stigma against my identity. And because of that, I know things about body politics and body acceptance that other people don't know, which means I have good access to good information and unique information. That's an asset and it helps me see how the world really works. So those are the experiences of like drying off when everyone else is wet <laughs> that helps you see something is different. But I don't, I honestly don't think that most people who are running status quo businesses that are overriding consent, I don't think they're waking up in the morning and like, you know, doing their nefarious villain laugh and I don't think that's what's happening. I think they went and took the business training and thought this is how business works. And if I'm going to be successful, I must implement in this way and didn't know that there were you know, problems here or harmful consequences or close their eyes to the harmful consequences because what was the other alternative? And so I, because of these identities that I have, can't close my eyes to it and forced myself to create other alternatives. I experimented with different alternatives. So I just think it's the status quo. We are all born into it. Even like as a woman, for example, I'm born into a patriarchy. I'm born into a misogynist culture. I have to unlearn those things. Just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm not a misogynist. I have to literally unlearn those things. I'm in the water too. Yeah. I have to learn how to do something different. I have to experiment and figure out how to do something different. And so that's the task is when you have those feelings of like, I hate this tactic. I don't feel good about my marketing. I'm embarrassed by my, my business practices. That's when you have to challenge yourself like, okay, so what can I do differently? What practices do I absolutely object to? Ditch them and replace them with something else. But that's the key, India. We have to replace them with something else. If you think of marketing or sales as a formula, if you delete one variable, you have to increase another variable or add another variable. So if we delete something, we must replace it with something else, which is when we get to experiment and see what works. Yeah, I love that because some of what I've witnessed is people saying things like, I don't like showing up on Instagram, or I can't figure out what lead magnet is right, or I hate sending these emails. And they're witnessing like the action that they're feel like they're required to take in their business, but there's not enough pausing to question why does it not feel good and digging like three more, four more, five more whys underneath that to really yeah. realize that the root is something's misaligned with your values. And there's also an opportunity to even reconsider what you think is normal practice and to then begin to explore for yourself and maybe in community with others of what are some other practices you can replace this with. Exactly. And the other situation might be that they might be using the wrong like lead, lead funnel or, you know, like they might be creating the wrong pipeline. So if someone really, really hates content marketing and hates social media and hates sending newsletters, then maybe they should be doing a business where they're out networking and going to events and getting referrals. Yes. I personally love that. <laughs> so personally, if I go to a party, I'm the person holding up the wall, talking to the dog. Like it's just not my scene. So networking is not my scene. So that's why online content marketing is perfect for me. I can write. I can really write. So that is like, I can show up from my strengths in all of those places. But if I had to go network at events, I don't even like leaving my house 
right? Like that, that's not, it's never going to work for me. So we actually have to build like the awareness funnel and the, the lead pipeline from our strengths and the things that we're good at and like to do. So if someone hates writing, hates being on social media, please find a different way to get clients. Yeah. When or get a team that does it for you. And, and also, like you said, um, the team piece allows you to explore, okay, what are your strengths? What do you enjoy? And maybe you do that and you hand off the other pieces to someone else and support them right. with that. And maybe, maybe it's a novelty problem. Maybe it's a window of tolerance thing. When I first came online, although I am a brilliant writer, have always been a great writer, have always you know, had jobs that involved writing. When I first came online in 2008, 2009 and had to press publish on a blog post, I physically had to leave the house for at least three or four hours so that the urge to delete it would fade. So what I'm trying to say is in the beginning, being visible in that way is unnerving. But the more you do it, the more your window of tolerance changes. So sometimes not liking something might just be that it's unfamiliar and it's novel and your window of tolerance hasn't yet expanded. And you need to give yourself time to settle in and acclimate. But like five years later, if you still haven't acclimated, maybe you just need a different pipeline and different different brand awareness strategy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like one of the things that I've um, witnessed quite a few people recently say that they do not enjoy and have begun to move away from is launching. I'm wondering um, for you if you feel like there is anything different that you would do as far as how you approach consent um, specifically in emails, if you're someone who doesn't have like launch cycles and instead you have something that's more evergreen. Yeah, I'm actually a little worried about that because what I've seen behind the scenes is unless you have a really, really big list, it's hard to move evergreen products at the rate that you need to move them to sustain a business. That could just be like what I'm seeing in my unique circles. Yeah. If it's evergreen, it's that you're selling, it seems to me that you're selling through SEO, right? Like people are discovering you, landing on a blog post, clicking through to a thing, maybe signing up to the newsletter. You know, all the principles are still the same. All the principles are at every step when they're taking an action, you know, checking in with them to let them know what comes after that action. So when someone goes to sign up to the newsletter, you want to let them know how often are they going to get a newsletter? What other kinds of communications are they going to get? So you just, you want to set expectations so people can have full information about what they're consenting to. Yeah. The other thing that shows up on my radar is for something that's evergreen is asking yourself, is there still a way to pick a specific piece of that to communicate about for a period of time or a specific angle to hit it for a period of time before you switch into something else? So that way you are able to kind of have a similar situation to a launch. If you're raising consciousness about a particular theme or a particular angle that your evergreen offer covers off, that I mean, that's very akin to a launch. And yeah. it, I maybe I, I actually am curious. Maybe we should unpack this. Why are people not liking launching? Oh, in, in my experience, <laughs> in my world, people don't like launching because you have to produce thirty thousand words of content in a very short amount of time. You have to send emails and social posts out every day. It's just like a frenzy of activity. And I mean, my solution to that is, you know, I have four products. I launch them regularly and the launch is the same every single time. So Rachel Rogers has this thing that she says that has marked my soul. And she says, work hard once. So build your product, build your launch. You work hard once, you built the thing that was hard and then you repeat it ever after. And that is easy. So right now I have a launch going on for my social media for culture makers course. And I started launching while I was on vacation. All the emails were written three years ago. All the social posts were written three years ago. All that had to be happened was that I changed the the dates that were mentioned in the captions and scheduled them all to go out again. They're bundled up in sequences. It's just like you just turn it on. So I'm on vacation. I'm not doing a thing. The launch is built. The zaps are built. (laughs) The course is built. And everything is just happening. So there's absolutely no stress on me whatsoever. So as long as you plan your year out and the launches are already built and your whole team knows what's happening when, and all you have to do is update, launches are a breeze. Yeah. I think sometimes it is truly um, being organized 
and tracking like what you've done when you're doing it the first go round. So that way you can tweak and repeat. Um, I also think sometimes it is maybe confusion for some people who don't technically have an open and closed cart situation where it's like a course or program that you can enter at any time instead of cohorts. Mm-hmm. But you can still have a launch season even with those. I agree. <laughs> and then and keep so I have a course called um, Copywriting for Culture Makers. And it is open enrollment. You can drop in anytime and come to office hours and it doesn't matter who's finished what module. You can talk about whatever you need to in the office hours. So you can enroll every time, anytime, but at least once a year I launch it so that we do have a cohort and so that I do have like some buzz around it. And that's why there's, you know, at any given time, you know, 100 to 130 people in the course is because there is a launch season that goes with it. People still enroll any old time they want and that happens. But the launch season helps me make sure that I can like plan to have a certain amount of revenue. If I had a much bigger list, maybe I would just leave it evergreen. If I had a better back end SEO funnel built, maybe I would just leave it evergreen. But right now, what I've experimented with, I did experiment with just letting it be open enrollment, but I didn't have like, I didn't have themes like you're talking about where, you know, for a month I talked about a thing and organically that meant that you would click through and look at this course. Right. But I have a list that's just under 10,000 people. And for me right now, the launching model is the one that fills the courses. And I also really like cohorts. And there's research that says that people who take courses with cohorts are more likely to finish and get more out of the course. And that's really important to me. I also like to have live office hours, even though all my courses are, you know, pre-recorded. you don't have to go to any of the office hours. You can do it on your own entirely if you want to, but there's also research that says that butts in seats live is how people finish courses and how people get success in courses. So it's important for me to have office hours and doing a launch and bringing in a cohort means that I can have live office hours because I know there's enough people there to pay for, you know, the teaching assistants that need to be available. Right. So, I mean, for anyone consuming this conversation, either through our article or the audio podcast, you heard it first, even if your program is evergreen, you can still create launches for it. Um, And in full transparency, you know, at Pause on the Play, it's one of the things that we do as well, because we do have monthly, we call them curated explorations. And so that allows us to have these themes that we go into both on the podcast, but as well as in the community. Yet our community technically is evergreen. It stimulates the feel of a launch each month. Right. And that, that cohort piece is so, so critical. So like one launching can be good for business because it makes sure that there's some buzz and people come in and there's like, you know, an actual campaign campaigns work in any, in any business campaigns work, but it's also much better for people taking online courses to have cohorts and to have components where there is live explorations, live Q and A's, that kind of thing. You know, the, the statistics for online courses is that only 15% of people who buy online courses ever complete them. And for me, that's not good enough. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I want to do anything possible to maximize the chances of people's success in these courses. So that's why I like launches because they produce cohorts and give me the opportunity to create, you know, live office hours where people can come and talk to me and talk to the other coaches. Yeah, I agree. The community model um, is a little bit different. And at the same time, even in a community model, it's, I've found that people feel a little bit less like the new person in the space (laughs) when there's at least one or two other new people at the same time. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) So as we kind of wind down from this conversation, uh, I think it's important to also kind of disrupt any preconceived notions that people may have. So I'm curious to know if there are any common mistakes or misconceptions that you encounter about creating a culture of consent, especially when it comes down to like your marketing and your business? I think people think that it's going to cost them money. And it's my experience that the more consent-based my practices are and the more obviously aligned my political principles and my personal principles are with my business practices, the better my business does. 
So in the beginning, when I was trying to do business, uh, the status quo way and use all these persuasion and anti-consent based tactics, I never really got traction. You know, I struggled to make more than a couple of thousand dollars a month. And now I make, you know, a couple of thousand dollars a day. And it's because my business is aligned and people who want to do business in that kind of way are going to come and work with me. And it's also because I can um, market fluidly and enthusiastically because I don't have any internal dissonance that says my marketing is sleazy and I should be embarrassed about it. Mm, That last piece is huge. (laughs) It's huge. If you don't feel good about your marketing, of course you can't get up and market your stuff. Like, of course you can't. It's like going out wearing clothes that you don't feel good in. Nobody wants to do that. You want to go out in like a finery where you feel like your most glorious, magnificent self represented, you know, in absolute truth and transparency. That's how you want your marketing and your business practices to feel too. Now, not everything is going to be perfect. It's there's always evolving social conditions. Your consciousness is going to change. So you're going to be changing your practices across your life as your principles and your moral outlook on the world changes. But it's a, it's a delicious ride. And it, for me, the more myself I am, the more politically and personally principled I am, the more all of that shows up in my practices, the better my business does. Uh, I love it. Thank you just so much for sharing. And I think it's so important in each of these episodes where we can be passively listening to a conversation or reading an article while we're supposed to be working or while we're driving and commuting somewhere, or whatever that may be, to reground back at the end to ask ourselves, like, what is one action we can take (laughs) so we can go from consuming to doing something? And I'm wondering, what is the action that you would like someone to take after taking in this conversation? I think it would be to, to get clear on what it is that you want to do. So often we know what we want to do, but we don't give ourselves permission to do it because it doesn't seem practical. But the thing is, is if you really know what you want to do, we're all smart. Humans are ingenious. We can figure out the next steps. So I guess it's like, give yourself permission to really tell the truth to yourself about what it is that you want to do. That would be first step. Once you do that, you will figure out the next steps. And all you need to do is figure out one step at a time. Every step you take, the next step appears. So just give yourself permission to tell the truth about what it is you really want to do and then trust that you're ingenious enough and humans in general are ingenious enough to figure out the path to that thing. And then just get in motion. Take one step. The next step will appear. Uh, You don't need a 48 point plan. (laughs) Uh, I love it, Kelly. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for all that you've shared for your time, your energy, and the love that you've put into this conversation. Thank you, India. It has been such a delight to have this conversation with you. And I hope everyone listening got something out of it too. I appreciate everyone's time and attention. Truly, it's a gift. And speaking of time and attention, you do have such a wonderful newsletter called the Sunday Love Letter. Could you share how someone can sign up to get that and to keep in touch with you? Sure. It's kellydeals.com slash subscribe. And every Sunday, you'll get me pouring out my heart on whatever is moving for me around business, culture, and self-development. I call myself a development coach because I'm all about business development, social development, and personal development. All right. And for any of you um, taking in this in the audio form, be sure to head over to check out the show notes. The link for Kelly's newsletter will be there for you waiting. I so love this conversation with Kelly. I know we talk a lot here about branding, visibility, marketing, and by now you probably know that I'm talking about those things through the lens or through the perspective of doing it in an ethical way. And so often people can think that doing business, doing branding, showing up with ethics at the top of their mind and heart can actually cause them to lose money or be unsuccessful. But the reality is when you're doing that, it creates more success. It creates more alignment. I love that Kelly shared how 
really taking this practice of consent allowed people to sign up before the thing was even being sold. I mean, that it just goes back so much to the concept of leading with your values and the values being the foundation, not necessarily what you sell and how much it costs to the relationships that you're building with others. Because at the end of the day, people are buying from and selling to other people, other humans, not these algorithms. So I just love the big takeaway that that had for me of just bringing that home and that refreshing consent even doesn't have to reduce your sales. It can build trust. It can preserve the list that you have if you're doing this through your email list because they feel like you respect them and that you respect their inbox. So I am just so excited that we've dug into these things and I truly hope that this provided a new perspective for you. And please do take the action that Kelly shared. I know it's gonna have so much impact for you. We have so many incredible new episodes ahead, so stay tuned, but until then, keep flaunting your fire. The Flaunt Your Fire podcast is brought to you by the wonderful brand I co-founded, Pause on the Play. You can learn more about Pause on the Play's community, workshops, and implicit to explicit masterclass at pauseontheplay.com. Again, that is pauseontheplay.com. ready to get clear on what matters let's do this from implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business it can all completely change the game having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?